Hello, boys and girls. This is Dr. John, and I'm so happy to welcome you once again to the Children's Story Hour. And helping me with the welcome is Auntie Sue. Hello, Auntie Sue. Hello, Dr. John. Auntie Sue, many years ago when you and I were missionaries over in Fiji, we had three little children. They're all growing up now, and you were telling us before that we had to survive several cyclones, but something strange happened one night during a cyclone. Yes. Someone knocked at the door and had found a little kitten. It was so tiny, its eyes were not open. And they gave it to us to see if we could look after it. I can remember that, Auntie Sue. It had the tiniest little cry. It was only a couple of days old. Yes, and then I wondered, how would I feed this little kitten and keep it alive? What did you do? So I went to my little daughter, my youngest daughter, and she had a little dolly bottle that she pretended to feed her doll with. And so we cut it a little on the on the teat so that it, the milk would run through well and we gave this poor little kitten cow's milk. I wondered if it would survive, but it did. You know, I remember it so well. I used to hold it up to my chest and it used to suck and that little kitten grew up. It never knew that it had a pussycat mother. We were its mummy and daddy and we loved little Oscar. Boys and girls, we love to hear from you, your letters and your drawings. And we need to know, Auntie Sue, where shall they write to? Can you tell us, please? Yes, you can write to us at Children's Story Hour, 3ABN Australia Radio, PO Box 752, Morissette 2264, New South Wales, Australia, or email at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also check us out at the radio page on the 3ABN Australia website. The web address is www.3abnaustralia.org.au. Thank you, Auntie Sue. You know, we just love to talk to Jesus and to invite him to be with us. He loves us so much. And would you pray for us now, please? Yes. Dear Lord, thank you so much for our pets. We thank you that we had the experience with little Oscar and you helped him grow. Now, dear Lord, as we listen to the stories, may we be faithful to you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you, Auntie Sue. Now, boys and girls, gather round, listen quietly for some more exciting stories in the Children's Story Hour. Hi, girls and boys. This is Uncle Alan, and the story I have for you today is called Broken Promise. Becky had begged for a bicycle for a long time, but Dad and Mum kept saying no. It wasn't safe, they said. But the other girls have bikes, Becky argued, so why can't I have one? It's the hill, said Dad. It's so steep. If you ever tried to ride down it, you might go right over the edge into the ravine. But the other roads are level enough, said Becky. Couldn't I ride on them? 
Of course you could, said Dad. If I thought you would never go on the hill road, I wouldn't mind you having a bike. But how could I be sure I would always be worrying about you? What if I promised faithfully that I would never ride on the hill road, said Becky? Could I have a bike then? Would you promise that, asked her mother. Of course I would, said Becky. And keep your promise? Of course. All right, we'll trust you, said Dad. So Becky got her bike, and for several weeks she rode it only on the level roads. But as time went by and she became more used to riding, she looked more and more longingly at the hill. Other children rode down it and seemed to have lots of fun. True, they got up terrific speed by the time they reached the bend at the bottom. But nothing happened to them. Nobody ever went over the edge into the ravine as Dad had feared. Perhaps, thought Becky, Dad and Mum are just worriers. They're thinking of the bikes they used to have when they were children, not the modern ones with good brakes like mine. Becky's special friend, Charlie, short for Charlotte, didn't help matters. She was sure the trouble was that Becky's parents were old-fashioned and didn't know what they were talking about. The hill wasn't dangerous at all, and Becky was just being a coward for not riding down it. I've got an idea, said Charlie. Let's ride down it together. I'll sit behind on your carrier so that if we start going too fast, I'll put my feet on the road and slow us down. Sounds a good idea, said Becky. That wouldn't exactly be riding down the hill myself, would it? Of course not, said Charlie. We'd be doing it together. Then we would be quite safe. So one Sunday morning found Charlie, Becky and her bike at the top of the hill. As Becky looked down the winding road, it seemed terribly steep and her heart began to flutter. I don't think I'd better go, she said. It really does look a bit too steep. Don't you think so? Steep, snorted Charlie. That's not steep. We'll be down at the bottom in a flash and you'll love it. Get on. Charlie got on the bike and rode a little way down the hill to show Becky how easy it would be. Then she pushed the bike back up and let Becky take over while she climbed on the carrier behind. They were off. Down they went, faster and faster. Becky clammed on the brakes as hard as she could, but they didn't seem to make any difference. Put your feet on the ground, she shrieked. I can't, shouted Charlie. We're going too fast. Swish, they were round the first bend. Swish, they were round the second bend. Now they were nearing the sharp curve on the edge of the ravine. Below lay big rocks and boulders. Slow down, yelled Charlie, or we'll never get round the bend. I can't, yelled Becky. The brakes won't work. Don't go over the edge, yelled Charlie. Better go into that car beside the road. And that's just what Becky did. But she didn't know it. Neither did Charlie. Both girls were knocked out by the crash. Hearing the noise, a neighbour ran out to see what had happened. She recognised Becky and phoned her home. Mother came running to the scene. She called a doctor and he called an ambulance. In no time at all, Becky and Charlie were in hospital, where they had special care. 
That accident cost Becky's mum and dad a lot of trouble and worry. Besides all the headaches and the heartaches it brought to herself. As for her precious bicycle, it was completely smashed. All because of a broken promise. It's Auntie Cecily back again, and I've got another story for you about our pet possum from my book, Libby and His Bush Friends. Chapter 16. Libby's Holiday. I visited Libby at the veterinary surgery again the following morning. If he keeps this rate of progress up, he may be able to go home in a few days' time, Dr. Farmer said optimistically. That's great news, I replied, then hesitated. What's the matter, asked Dr. Farmer, sensing that something was wrong. There's only one problem, I confided. We are due to travel south for holidays. We are supposed to leave the day after tomorrow. If we take Libby home, there won't be anybody to give him his medicine and make sure he's all right. Dr. Farmer smiled understandingly. I can look after him while you're on holidays. He won't be any problem. Oh, would you? That would be very kind of you. I'll buy some fruit for him so you have plenty of his favourite foods on hand. Don't worry about that, laughed Dr Farmer. He won't starve. I own a mango farm. There's no shortage of Libby's favourite foods around my place. So we all went on holidays. Libby went to Dr Farmer's home and we drove south for two weeks at the beach. We rang Dr Farmer a couple of times during the first week of our holidays. We were still very concerned about Libby. He's doing well, Dr Farmer informed us. He'll be able to return to the bush safely when you get home. While we were getting on with our holiday, Libby was getting on with his. Libby made a new friend, a young veterinary assistant, whom we'll call Tim. Tim liked Libby, and Libby liked Tim. Tim let Libby out of his cage each day and gave him plenty of his favourite foods. Tim was also very impressed with Libby's gentle nature. He seemed much tamer and quieter than the other possums he had come across. In fact, the two became such good pals that Tim gave Libby rides on his shoulder. Libby loved the time he spent out of his cage now that he was feeling better. There were so many new places to explore and he could see everything that was going on when he was on Tim's shoulder. Although Tim and Libby were getting along famously, Tim had a lesson or two to learn about possums. A possum is a possum is a possum. That means no matter how friendly you think a possum is or how tame you think he's become, he still has possum instincts. One night, lulled into a false sense of security by Libby's gentleness, Tim went outside with Libby on his shoulder. Dr Farmer had a few tall gum trees growing in his front yard. 
How would you like some juicy tender gum leaves? asked Tim, stretching out his arm to pick some leaves for Libby. Libby was off in an instant. He ran down Tim's arm and bolted up the tree trunk. Completely out of reach and refusing all Tim's entreaties to come down, Libby perched himself on a branch high up in the tree. While Libby savoured the cool evening breeze and picked at young gum leaves, Tim stood far below, defeated. He now realised that Libby was still essentially a bush animal. Tim decided there was nothing that he could do to get Libby back. He knew that Libby was well enough to live in the bush again, so he resigned himself to the situation and returned to the house. Everything settled for the night, Dr Farmer asked, glancing over at the top of his newspaper. Everything is okay, uh, except for Libby. He was on my shoulder and when I went outside for a moment, Where's Libby now? inquired Dr Farmer. He's gone, said Tim sadly. What do you mean he's gone? asked Dr Farmer alarmed. I was getting Libby some gum leaves and he jumped off my arm and up the tree. I tried to get him to come down but nothing worked. Dr Farmer headed for the door with Tim in close pursuit. We have to catch him. I promised the Harkers that I'd look after their possum. He's very special to them. How are we going to do that? asked Tim as they stood at the base of the gum tree peering up at Libby high above them. You're going to climb up there and catch him, announced Dr Farmer. So Tim began climbing a very long extension ladder, working his way up cautiously until he was eye level with Libby. Libby did not run away from Tim. After all, they were friends. Libby appeared quite content and didn't seem to mind a visit from Tim at all. However... Libby did not anticipate what Tim was going to do next, nor, for that matter, did Tim anticipate what Libby was about to do. Tim stretched out his arm and grabbed Libby by the base of his tail. Libby responded to that indignity by clinging tightly to the branch. Tim could not budge him, so he tugged harder on Libby's tail, and Libby tightened his grip further. Come on, Libby, Tim coaxed. You have to come down with me. Balancing carefully on the ladder, Tim used both hands to prise Libby off the branch. In the scuffle that followed, Libby twisted and turned, struggling to free himself from Tim's firm grasp. Ouch! cried Tim from the treetop. He's scratching me. Hang on, was the only directive from Dr Farmer. Quick, get a blanket to wrap him in, Tim called to Dr Farmer as Libby made a last desperate effort to release himself from Tim's grip. A few moments later, Libby was back in his cage, oblivious to all the trouble he had caused. Tim cleaned his wounds with disinfectant while Dr Farmer offered words of comfort. Sorry, Tim, but we really did need to get Libby back safe and sound. He might not have survived in the gum trees around here. There are many more dangers for him here in the city. 
He is much safer in the bushland on Harvey's range, where he knows the territory. Tim's wounds were only surface scratches. He knew that Libby had not intended to hurt him, so there were no hard feelings. We returned home from our holiday, totally unaware of all the trouble Libby had caused. How is he? I asked Dr Farmer as he handed Libby to me. He's fine. He's fully recovered. In fact, he caught us unawares. We thought he was so tame, we didn't realise he might run away, he said, briefly relating how Libby escaped and had to be recaptured by Tim. We thanked Dr Farmer profusely for capturing Libby again. We also sent a thank you card and some goodies to Tim in appreciation for his daring exploits. We thanked God too that everything had worked out well as he promised it would in Romans 8.28, first part. And we know all things work together for good to them that love God. Once home, Libby settled into his old routine quickly. His long-standing trust in his human friends did not seem to be marred in any way by his encounter with Tim in the gum tree. It was one of those fleeting moments apparently quite forgotten. Libby continued to enjoy our company, especially rides on Barry's shoulder, just so long as the back door to his freedom was always open. It's story time, and this is Uncle Gordon to bring you another story from the South Pacific Islands. The Lord loves us to sing. As a matter of fact, the angels of heaven are constantly singing, and singing is as much a part of worship as is prayer. When we pray, we're making direct contact with God. When we're singing hymns of praise, the Lord is hearing them as a blessing to him and to us. And so I have in the, the Bible here in, in the book of uh, Psalm and verse chapter 28 and verse 7, it says, And my heart greatly rejoiceth, and with my song will I praise him. In other words, God is greatly blessed by our prayers and we are greatly blessed by his presence. So singing is an important part, but we need to make sure that we select the right kind of singing. I'd like to tell a story of what happened as a result of singing. Back years ago, before Christianity had got into all the islands of the South Pacific, there was one island up in Papua New Guinea which uh, had rejected all forms of Christian religion. Many had made attempts to get into that island but had been either murdered or driven off and it was renowned, even in government circles, as a very evil island. They were cannibalistic, they were evil in every degree, very, very wild, brutal people. And so the government said it was out of order. Just let them rot in their, in their evil ways. Well, one of our mission ships was sailing down past the island of Musau. And uh, it was late afternoon and there are many reefs there. And so the captain didn't want to try and navigate through there when it was um, dark. And so he decided to drop anchor just off the island of Malaita and uh, stay the night. But he noticed that, and he knew about the island and what the people were like, he noticed many canoes coming out from the island and they came right out to the boat where he was 
And as it was evening, they were about to have worship. And so everybody was up on the deck of the boat, our mission ship. But in the meantime, these people were rowing around and around the boat and crying out. All those on board the boat began to sing their, their hymns of praise as part of their worship. And they stopped in their canoes and they looked up and they'd never heard anything like that before in their life. And uh, when they'd stop singing, they'd urge them with their hands and crying out as if they wanted them to start again. So they sang and sang and sang, went on late into the night. And uh, the people seemed to enjoy it. These people in the canoes seemed to enjoy it. And then as it was very late, probably getting to, towards midnight, they noticed that the canoes were heading back into the into their villages. And so the men on board boat set up a watch in case they came out in the dark and attacked them. And they uh, began to uh, take a rest, hoping that in the morning when it was light enough, they'd be able to raise anchor and head off into their uh, destination. Anyway, when uh, morning came, the canoes came out again and they were having morning worship before they set sail. And these men came out and with gestures of their arms and hands, they seemed to be saying as they wanted them to sing again. So they began to sing and sing and it went on and on well into the day. These people were wanting them to sing. They'd never heard singing before. Singing was unknown to them, quite ignorant of what uh, singing was all about. And so uh, finally... Uh, they said, well, we must go now. And so they came on board and through signs and and uh, talking, a language which they didn't understand, they got the message across that they wanted somebody to come ashore and stay with them and teach them how to sing because never before had they heard anything and there was no singing on their island. And uh, there was fear on board boat because they said, oh, this is a trick. They're trying to get us to go ashore. And uh, these men seemed to be so earnest in wanting them to come ashore. And they had heard what evil people they were and how bloodthirsty they were. And so there was a big discussion on the boat. Finally, there were two men from the Solomon Islands who were missionaries down there in New Guinea. One was called Oti and the other was Salau. And Oti and Salau said, look, uh, we're willing to go ashore and see if it's okay to uh, stay with them. And the captain was not happy about that, but he said, well, we'll keep a watch and if there's any trouble, we'll come and help you. So they got into their boat and they rowed ashore and they got out there and the people were there gathered around about them and they didn't seem to do any harm to them and invited them, beckoning them to come over to their place. And when it was seen that they were happy there, Oti and Salau said, well, look, you go on, we'll stay here and we'll be missionaries to this island. And so they stayed on. And all the people wanted to do was to learn these songs and to learn the language. And Odi and Salau taught them many, many hymns and choruses, songs of praise. They also taught them what the God of heaven would have us to live like. And as a result of that, the people of that island not only learned to sing, but they also became very religious accepting all the stories of the Bible and especially the one about Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came down to this earth to save them. They said, we want him to be in here in our hearts. And they gave their hearts to the Lord. And the, the whole of the island, all the people on that island became Christians. And as a result of that, their name became famous because not only were they now Christians instead of cannibals, they were anxious to 
sing to everybody. And they've got beautiful harmony, beautiful songs that they sing. They even make some own, their own songs up with the words. And it's interesting, even to this day, if you want some good singers, you get the people from Musau. There is one Musau man that was leading a choir up in the highlands of New Guinea, and uh, he would lead the choir, and it was an excellent choir. And when they'd have their biggest Edfords and, and have a, a test with the other choirs, they always said, and for eight years they won the top prize every year as a result of their beautiful harmony and ability to sing. And uh, finally, the people who organised the uh, Steadford, finding who the champion singers were, they asked that the choir from Musa would not sing anymore. They'd leave it to the others to have an opportunity because Musa pe- people were winning it every year. And this is what the Lord says. He, he said, if you will sing your praises to me. And when I turn over to the book of uh, Isaiah, chapter 35, and uh, in verse 2, and he says... Uh, they shall see the glory of the Lord and excellency of our God. This came about with the people of Musau as a result of singing. Maybe you can help somebody with your singing. Maybe you know some choruses you can go and teach. I can remember as a young man, when I first gave my heart to the Lord Jesus, I used to go around to the old people's homes on a Sabbath afternoon and we would then sing to the people. There was one elderly lady who used to play the organ and she knew all the old hymns without music, and she would play them, and we would sing them to the old people. Singing is a wonderful way of expressing uh, your love for God. As a matter of fact, we're told that the singing of hymns is as much a part of worship as is prayer. The Lord help you to sing as well as to pray. Sophie Lee here to read you another portion of the book, Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. The storm continued, but they were no longer afraid. Let's call for help together, Mr. Gurney said after a while. Maybe someone on the island will hear us. So they did. Help! 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 They shouted over and over together. A little girl in the house nearest to the shore couldn't sleep. The loud storm had kept her awake. Suddenly she sat up in bed. Did I hear someone call, she asked herself. Then she heard it again. Her father had rescued many ships in danger, so she ran to his room and called. He listened a moment, then jerked on his raincoat. I'm coming, he yelled as he lighted a lantern and rode out into the darkness. Shouting back and forth, they finally found each other. The man tied a rope to the sailboat and towed it to shore. Just as Ellen and the others left the boat, the rope broke and the sailboat headed out to sea. Forget the boat, the man said. It's gone. He took them to the nearby home of the Adventist family they'd come to visit. Their mother brought robes for Ellen and the others and hung their clothes beside the warm fire to dry. Then they brought them hot bowls of soup. Ellen thought she'd never tasted such good food in her life. They spent most of the night singing to God and praising him for his wondrous way of saving them from the storm. The discouraged Adventist family they'd come to encourage felt God's presence in the rescue too and felt excited to know that God still cared for each of them in every little way. The next morning, the men walked around the island looking for the sailboat but didn't even find a piece of the sail. 
The boats at the bottom of the ocean, they said sadly. The men they'd been visiting said he would take them home in his sailboat. As they sailed over the smooth water, they neared the place where they had borrowed the boat. How can we pay the owner for his lost boat, they wondered. I'll have to stop singing and preaching, Mr Gurney said. I'll go back to my blacksmithing and pay every cent I can on the boat until it's paid for. I have five dollars at home, Sarah said. It will help a little. At first, Ellen didn't say anything because she didn't have any money to give. Then she said, God kept us from drowning. He sent us on this trip. Somehow he'll help us pay for the sailboat so we can still keep working for him. Let's ask him. While the gentle waves lapped their boat, they asked God to help them find ways to pay for the lost boat. They prayed aloud for a few minutes, then everyone prayed silently. Soon they neared the boat owner's home. Dear Lord, Mr Gurney prayed out loud, give me wise words to tell my friend what happened. Thank you, Lord. As they neared the empty dock where the boat had been kept, Ellen saw something. She pointed and they all talked at once. Look, look, it can't be. This is impossible. But it was there. The sailboat they'd lost at sea was tied to the dock. Not even a sail was torn. The owner approached Mr Gurney and pointed at the boat. How did that get here? he asked. I thought you returned it, the owner said. It was here early this morning. They shook their heads and all tried to tell the man what happened. They had many questions they couldn't answer. Who kept the boat from being broken into pieces? Who guided it out of the storm safely to its own dock? Who knew where it belonged? But they really knew the answers. God cared for the boat and brought it home safe and sound. He really cares about every little thing in our lives, Mr Gurney said. And he wants us to spend our time working for him, Ellen added, not working for money to pay for a lost boat. Chapter 11. Ellen's Second Angel Two or three times each week, Bill Jordan and his sister Sarah visited the Harmon home in Portland to study and pray with them. We have an idea, Bill exclaimed one evening when they arrived. I borrowed a horse and sleigh from a young Adventist preacher in Orrington. It's a hundred miles from here and Sarah is going with me to return it. Alan, why don't you go with us? You could share the good news God has given you with the disappointed Adventists there. We could stay and travel with you from place to place. Though so weak, she could hardly speak above a whisper. Alan knew God wanted her to go. Hadn't she promised him she'd go anywhere he called? Hadn't he promised he'd send a second angel if she ever needed one? Trusting God, Ellen told the Jordans that she would go with them. Dressed in her warmest clothes, covered with buffalo robes, Ellen stayed warm as the horse pulled the sleigh across the frozen snow at a quick trot. The trip took several days. As they rode along, Bill and Sarah told Ellen about their young preacher friend, James White. He lives on a farm with his parents, Bill said. James taught over a thousand people to know Jesus and to believe in his return before the disappointment. Now he's searching for answers about why Jesus didn't come so he can explain the mistake to them. James White met the travellers when they reached Orrington. The Jordans told James that Ellen was going to speak that very evening to a group of Adventists in their home. James decided to stay and see what this young woman would say. That evening, what he saw and heard convinced him that Ellen was a messenger from God. Every Adventist must hear this wonderful news, he exclaimed. He looked at Ellen. He could see that she was young and shy and had no money. 
How do you plan to travel as you spread this good news? How will you get from group to group? Ella shook her head and smiled. I have no idea how I will travel, but God always opens a way. I know what we'll do, James said eagerly. I'll drive my horse and sleigh and take you and the Jordans to visit the Adventist groups. I know many of them. They need encouragement. I'll send notices ahead and organise meetings. Ranger Dan, everything is perfect. Our footprints, they're gone. It's as if we were never here. God has sent a blanket of snow to cover everything. And there's another powerful lesson in that too, Mrs. Tammy. If we want him to, Jesus will do that with our lives as well. What do you mean, Ranger Dan? Well, when we ask Jesus to forgive us for our sins... He gives us our own special blanket of snow. And that blanket covers up all of our bad habits and not-so-nice bits so that his perfect, beautiful life will be the only thing that God sees. The Bible calls it Jesus' white robe of righteousness. Wow. We have a wonderful God, don't we, Ranger Dan? We sure do, Mrs. Tammy. We sure do.
G'day girls and boys, Auntie Nat here. I'm so glad that you've come back to join me in reading the Bible. Are you enjoying reading the Bible? I hope you have your Bibles ready to read along with me. I'm reading from the New King James Version. And today we're going to continue our story in the Gospel of John, which is um, in the New Testament. And we're reading from chapter 2 today. And we're going to start in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So boys and girls, Jesus had returned to his hometown of Nazareth after a two-month absence to go to a wedding close by in Cana. The people to be married were relatives of his family, and he and his disciples had been invited. His mother Mary was helping with the preparations. Let's continue to read in verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. So it was a custom in the days of Jesus that wedding celebrations went on for several days, and so the running out of wine or grape juice was not a good thing. Mary, being part of the hospitality team, comes to Jesus and tells him that the wine has run out. Jesus' answer to his mother can seem a bit abrupt to our ears, but Jesus addressed his mother as the custom of the time. Jesus loved his mother and no unkind, cold or unloving word came out of his mouth when he talked with people. Jesus had been a very loving and obedient son to his mother Mary. Jesus was at this time also gently letting Mary know that the time had come to be led totally by his Father in heaven and not to perform a miracle because someone asked him to. There was a plan for everything he did from now on until his death. Let's continue reading in verse 6. Now there was set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Wow, so the wine or grape juice was so good it astounded the guest. Towards the end of the feast, sometimes the quality was not as good. They would give the best first, but in this case, the best was left for last. The juice was also pure and fresh grape juice. It was not fermented or was alcoholic, like we understand wine to be today. Jesus would never have offered something that was harmful to the body. It would have been totally out of character of who he was. Jesus was pure and holy and would not have contradicted his word found in Proverbs 21. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Let's continue to read in verse 11. This is the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days." 
So boys and girls, this miracle was a sign of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He also performed this miracle to strengthen the trust of his disciples and his mother Mary. The news of this miracle spread far and wide and even reached the priests in Jerusalem. Jesus came for both rich and poor, the intellects and the uneducated. He met people where they were. Jesus had a wonderful way with people. The priests had locked themselves in laws and traditions that there were barriers in reaching the different classes of society. Jesus came to reach all these classes. Jesus tells us in Mark 16:15 to take the gospel of Christ to all the world because he came and died for everyone's sins to set them free. Now that's something to think about. Hello, boys and girls. It's Dr. John with another story from the Jungle Stories book by Eric B. Hare. You know, he was a missionary there nearly 100 years ago, and he was there for nearly 20 years. A wonderful man and a wonderful storyteller. This one is called How the Seed Grows. If I get up with the crowing of the cock, I can walk there by night. I'm sure I can, for Uncle took me once years ago, and we walked it in a day, and I'm lots bigger now, stoutly declared Own Brint as that very young man of 18 years stepped up to the rickety bamboo ladder and landed on the open bamboo veranda of a fairly respectable bamboo house. To where can my brother walk in a day, called his sister from the fireplace. And the old mother, startled with the sudden information, opened her eyes and mouth so wide in expectation of some further wonderful information that the wad of horrible, filthy betel nut, all red and juicy, rolled right out of her mouth unnoticed onto the bamboo floor, then through the crack to the downstairs where the chickens and pigs, always on the alert for dainty morsels, for a moment scrambled and then separated in silent disgust as they discovered it was something they would not eat. Why, to come among added own Bwint. Where's father? Where's father? We will first ask you, where's Kamamang? And what are you talking about going to Kamamang for? Is this some place where the gnats live or some place where you've been reading about in those strange books down at the Pyongyi Chung or the Buddhist preschool? No, not so, my sister, it is neither, but wait till father comes and I'll tell you all. Then sit down and rest. Or go rather to the well and draw me a little water. It's not dark yet, and father won't be home till after the chickens have all gone to bed. As own Bwint disappeared with the bamboo buckets and noises from within showed that his sister was busy with the preparation of the evening meal. The old mother recovered her equilibrium without any change of position or any reaction, whatever other than the shutting of her mouth Whereupon, finding it empty, she busied herself with preparing another piece of horrible, stinking, smelling betel nut, 
adding a little tobacco, a little lime, and a little leaf until it was just right. And then she gave herself up to her thoughts. Her son, going to Kalmamang, why of all the three sons, this, the youngest, was the only one that showed an inclination to books. The two bigger boys who had never gone to school were now married and settled down not far away. But they had hoped great things for this boy, and four years ago they had joined him at the Pyongyang. How proud they had been when they saw him don the yellow, shave his head and take his place in the line of quiet priests as they wound their way through the village every morning, giving the people opportunity to obtain merits with gifts of rice, curry, and tobacco. Yes, and they had only at the full of the last moon bowed down to him and worshipped him their son. And now Kubamang... Where's Kumamang anyway? And she leaned back on a bundle of newly picked cotton and allowed her fancy to play around the events of his birth and boyhood. Unconsciously, her jaw kept time with the pounding inside as she sat there beside the fireplace where the chilies were being powdered for the curry. Then, all of a sudden, her eyes lit up on one of the books with those funny, round, soap-bubbly letters. The smoke from the fireplace was making circles around the bamboo rafters of the roof. Everything was circles. The priest said life was a circle too. And before long, the priests, the books and smoke all got mixed up in one big circle tangle, and she went to sleep. The chickens had gone to bed. The water had been brought. The evening meal had been cooked, and now that the family were seated on the floor around the little table eating the rice, the father asked, What's this about Kamamong? Father, don't be angry with me, but I will ask your permission. You know, for four years I've been studying at the Chuang, and now my studies there are finished, and I hear that at Kamamong, there is a god worshipper school where they teach us up to year seven, and I want to go and study at that school. Three pairs of eyes popped wide open. Three lower jaws fell open. Three hands lay powerless to lift the rice any longer to their mouths. Where? Where? How far away has come among, gasped the father. We can walk it in a day if we start at the crowing of the cock and it's down there near where the fireboat goes up and down the river. It seems I have heard about the fireboat, said the father, but mother had heard of something else, she said. And I hear that those god worshippers keep a dotaka, a supernatural being, half animal and half human that eats humans. And woe to the simple that believe their ways, for before long they are thrown into the water and fed to this terrible monster. But, Mother, nobody's ever seen the Dotaka. Neither have we heard that anyone from around here has ever been fed to it. Uncle has been down there to the school, and, and he says he saw no such thing. But he says that everybody there is very happy, and they laughed at him when he asked them about the Dotaka. 
And Father, they teach some words of the white man's language there. You must surely let me go even for three months and I'll return and we'll know more about the God worshippers. Hmm. They finished the meal in silence. And by the time to go to bed, it was understood that Owen winked was going to come among at the crowing of the cock. The mother secretly abandoned all hope of ever seeing her son again. The father, partaking of the enthusiasm of his son, wished himself young enough to go and see for himself. But the little sister, up before the crowing of the cock, had a bundle of rice ready for her big brother and demanded the promise that he would surely come back after three moons, that's three months, and was not satisfied until he called back, yes, I'll come back on the third or fourth day after the third moon. Today, O oh mother, is the fourth day of the third moon since my brother went to school. How diligently have I counted the days and the moons, how anxiously have I waited for his steps yesterday and today. The old man sat there spinning cotton. The tiny wooden rollers of the homemade machine groaned and screamed as they tore off the threads and left the oily cotton seeds to fall down into a small basket beneath. It seemed almost as if the girl's plaintive words had fallen on ears that weren't listening and no, the chewing stayed, the large reddened lips parted. What vain hope is this that lingers in your heart? Don't make yourself sad by thinking of return. For long before the Doctaka has satisfied himself with the flesh of my son. The lips closed, the chewing resumed, and the groaning of the cotton gin increased as the mother more savagely turned the handle, as if in this way she could avenge the death of her son. And the day wore on. The evening closed around them, with its usual routine of penning up the pigs and the hens, but even though there might have been a new batch of chickens to fondle, Noesine's heart was heavy, so heavy, she could not eat her rice happily. Her brother had promised to come back yesterday or today, and even if her religion did teach her never to express emotion, she was so heavy-hearted. Perhaps the Dortaka had eaten. But just then, the dogs began to bark furiously. Father, do you hear the dogs? What evil can this be coming upon us? Quick, Father, get your spear. Maybe some thief thinks to do us evil. But the dogs had stopped as suddenly as they started, and footsteps were rapidly approaching the house. It must be someone that the dogs know, said the father. It must be a friend, said the sister. It was own winked. Excitement, surprise and delight ran right in each heart. But strange as it may seem, no word was spoken, no greeting given, for such is the custom among good Karens. The brother threw himself on a mat. The sister ran for a plate of rice while father and mother prepared fresh wads of betel nut. At last, Owen Winked spoke. You see, I've come. 
I knew you'd come, said his sister. I looked for you all day yesterday and today. I walked in one day. I told you I would. Special thanks go to Pacific Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read on air a selection from Jungle Stories, written by Eric B. Hare, and Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Also, thanks goes to Stanborough Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read a selection of stories from the set of books called Uncle Arthur's Best Bedtime Stories. And thanks to Remnant Publications for permission to read the Remnant Young Scholar Study Bible on air. We would also like to thank Daniel and Tammy Cinzio for allowing us to play their CD Frozen Chosen on air. For any other information about the Children's Story Hour, you can contact us at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. i
Auntie Cecily sang All Things Bright and Beautiful, and before that she sang When He Cometh. Well, boys and girls, we have come to the end of another Children's Story Hour. We thank you for joining us, and we hope that you have enjoyed the program. On behalf of Auntie Sue, I would like to say goodbye, God bless you, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of the Children's Story Hour.